The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. So welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm uh, the pastor here. Where are we at, Tyler? I feel I'm in the dark. It's cool. Good thing I have an iPad. I can see it. Um, welcome again. My name is Justin. We are we're thrilled that you're worshiping here with us this morning. Um, this is really one seventh of what we do as a church. The, the main thrust of our body, the main thrust of what we do is we live life together in community and on mission through missional communities that gather throughout the city, um, throughout the week. Uh, so thank you for, for coming this, this day. Um, is a little different. It's not really about us. Sunday's not really about us. Sunday's about God. So our songs try to, to turn us not towards ourselves, but turn us up to God. The liturgy flows to remind us of the gospel, to remind us that we're part of a historic church, that we don't just get to invent things on our own, or even the way we do church on our own. It's not just up to us to be creative and cool and come up with catchy ways to do church. Um, church is something that the apostles that passed down through the apostles, and we want to stay rooted in historical Christianity. So we don't do anything flashy. Uh, we, we have a lot of scripture. You've probably already felt that this morning. Uh, we read a lot of scripture. And as a church, one thing we do, um, I don't preach series uh, typically. We just go through books of the Bible. So we've been through Ephesians as a church. And now we are working through the first book of the Bible, the first book of the Pentateuch, which is the book of Genesis. And we've been walking verse by verse all the way through that. Um, one of my jobs as a pastor is to teach the word of God and teach the whole counsel of the word of God, not just what um, I want to teach. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be walking through that. This is our 10th week in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's my prayer that you've been blessed as much as I have uh, while studying this book. Uh, verse by verse, we find ourselves right now in chapter 9. So grab your Bible and let's dig in. If you have an iPhone or an Android phone, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, that's just the regular Bible app, the number one Bible app. If you have that, you click on live events, Sacred City Church will come up there and our liturgy flows right there. So you can flow along with the scripture right from uh, your smartphone. So to catch you up, here we go. I'm going to catch you up because we've got some new people in the house this morning. I want to welcome you. I'm thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, To catch you up, Genesis is about beginnings. It's about the beginning of time, the beginning of the world, the beginning of universe, the beginning of all creation, and the beginning of the human race. Genesis is a book written by Moses sometime in the early second millennium as he was leading several million Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. It's important for us to know that context. So far, we have seen that God created man and woman to glorify him by being married, by making babies, and by creating good culture. Okay, we're, this church is getting a couple of those really well. All right? We are definitely good at getting married and making babies right now. Uh, they were meant to spread that culture, a culture that glorifies God. They were meant to spread that culture around the world to glorify their creator. Okay? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Make good culture. Make babies. All right? To show the world how to glorify me and use the things that I've given you to glorify God. Unfortunately, we learned in Genesis, they don't do that, do they? They decide to shoot for the autonomous life. They see God as a competitor to the good life. 
and not as he truly is the source of everything good. How often do we see that in our life? God is a hindrance to the good life. God is a competitor with me to the good life. God is something that holds me back from experiencing what I think is good. I don't see God all the time as the source of everything good. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us anything good apart from himself because there is nothing good apart from himself. So God allows their rebellion. We're going to fly through this here. So God allows their rebellion and also allows the punishment for their sins to rest on them, to rest on them, to rest on all their offspring, and even to rest on creation itself. Yesterday, I was uh, in my front yard doing some landscaping. I was cutting down a rose bush. Uh, I was basically fulfilling the cultural mandates to subdue creation, right? I'm working out this renew all of the earth. I'm cutting down this rose bush in my front yard and I was looking at it. You know, I don't, you don't often do that, but I I, I would cut it down and I was looking at it and I was looking just how wicked it looks. When you look at these thorns, they look, they look like, they look completely foreign to a rose, They look like something that should be on predator or alien or some just bad mamma jamma, right? You look at this stuff and it doesn't look like something that's on a rose. A rose is beautiful. A rose is soft. You touch the petals and they fall off. A rose is something precious that when you see it, you want to pick it up and smell it. It's like a trick. It's like a trap. You grab that thing and what happens? Inevitably, blood starts to flow. I mean, I look like I battled with Wolverine this morning. I've got them all over. I've got scratches and cuts. All, I'm picking out thorns all night long from my hands. It's so strange. Something that just begs to be picked up and touched, but draws blood every time you do. See, those thorns are a result of man's sinful rebellion. They are a result of God's curse, his subsequent curse on the earth. Roses never had thorns until the curse caused by man's rebellion. So anyway, back to the story. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, but before they go, he tells them that he's going to let this story play out. I want you to hear this. God says, you broke it, you messed it up, you you caused a curse to enter all creation, but I'm going to let this story play out. It's going to be a fight. Sin is going to affect everything, but someday I will send a man to make it right. It's going to be a while, but someday this man will fix everything. There it comes. So God sends them out of the garden. He blocks them from the tree of life and they start making babies. Right away, we see God's promise come true about relational conflict infecting the human race. As Adam and Eve's rebellion breeds more rebellion in their sons. You probably heard of Cain and Abel. The first murder happens as one of their sons, Cain, kills the other one, Abel. Cain, the Bible says, followed Satan and Abel walked with God. But God decided to bless Adam and Eve's other son, Seth. He curses Cain, but unfortunately things don't get much better as Adam's descendants just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, right? And then we have one chapter that we studied that covered 1,600 years of human history and there's only a couple bright spots. 
this dude named Enoch, who is God's first round draft pick and gets an early retirement by being transported to heaven without experiencing death. And then there's Noah. At this time, God looks down and he makes the statement that only an all-knowing, all-seeing God could ever make. He says, every intention and thought of every man's heart was evil continually. God looks down at the human race, the human race that he's created, that he's basically given birth to. After 1,600 years of history from Adam, he looks down and this is what he says about him. Oh, my sweet babies. No, he looks down and says, every thought and intention of their heart is only evil continually. There's no way to wiggle out of that one. Every, always, in, I mean, continually. He makes it a blanket statement about all people that they're bent in on themselves. Every single person was bent in on himself. Every man wanted to be his own God. Wanting to live the autonomous life separate from God, that the same life that got Adam and Eve in trouble. Every person, I think it's true of us, every person just wants to be God. They want to rule. They want to make the decisions regarding what is good and what is bad for me. And this all-seeing and all-knowing God looks down and he makes a decision. He says, I'm going to give grace to my boy Noah and his family and I'm going to kill everybody else. Was that fair? Absolutely not. Was it gracious? You betcha. God chooses to show Noah and his family grace, which is the preferential treatment by making Noah righteous, by making Noah righteous and walking with him. Telling him how to, how to be saved by obeying God and being faithful by building the ark to save him and his family from God's judgment that is coming against the sin of mankind. And Noah responds to God in faith and obedience. Now listen, I really want to give the guy some early love this morning because he's about to look like a fool real quick here. Okay, so I'm going to try to build him up just a little bit. Say, yeah, Moses was, or Moses, Noah was our boy the last couple of weeks. He obeyed God. It was great. So the last two weeks we've been studying Noah. We've been studying the flood. We've been studying what God was doing In the flood, we saw how God decided, listen to this, to remove, God decided to remove every unrepentant sinner from the face of the earth. God, in his sovereign will, in his prerogative as sovereign over all, says, I'm going to start over with Noah and his family. I'm going to give this one family grace and wipe everybody else off the planet. You might not like that. That's okay. You don't have to like it doesn't really matter if you do like it. He's God and you're not. But this, this, this washing, well, listen. So he decides, I'm going to save this one family. I'm going to wipe the earth clean. When I think about this, this washing reminds me of one of Jesus' sermons in Matthew chapter 23 when he says for, to, the, to the Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but in the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
See, God had washed the earth clean and he had renewed it again through the flood, but sin and its effects were still inside. Somebody say inside the hearts of Noah and his family. Sin survived the flood. You can clean up the outside of the cup all you want. You can memorize the Bible. You can wear your Christian t-shirt. You can put the fish on the back of your car. Does the fish on the back of your car help your driving any? Neither does any moralistic improvement help your sinful condition in your heart. You can prop yourself up with every accountability tool, every computer software, everything man has to offer. You can prop yourself up, but it still doesn't deal with the real problem. And that's the sinful curse. That's the curse. That's the indwelling sin, original sin that lives inside my heart. The family that survived the flood is about to parallel the family that preceded the flood. I hope you get this this morning. There is no managing sin. You either kill it or it kills you. There is no middle ground. There is no, I'm going to play with sin and I'm going to clean up the outside and then everybody thinks I'm a good religious boy or girl. There is no managing sin. It's a poison. It's a ticking time bomb on the inside and you can't get to it by managing anything from the outside. You can go to missional community. You can come on Sunday morning. You can read your Bible. You can read books. You can be in a discipleship group. You can go to conferences. You can just try to be a really good person and please God. But there's a ticking time bomb on the inside of you that will go off and destroy your life. The flood didn't cure it. That's what, the, that's what God and Moses is trying to show us and to show his people here. See, some people look at the cross of Jesus Christ and they see some form of divine child abuse. That God just like completely, seriously overreacted by killing Jesus. Wow. Overreaction. You killed your son? Couldn't you just give me a pill or something? Right? We just dish it out like communion. Some people think that communion saves. Communion does not save you. If you are unrepentant, if you are, the Bible says, unregenerate, if you have not been saved by God, communion can actually curse you and and bring literally damnation and sickness into your life. That's New Testament, by the way. We don't dish out things that you can just pop a couple pills and deal with the sin problem. Now, you could go to... You can get psychotherapy, you can go, and I'm not saying there's not chemical issues, and I'm not saying that that we're not learning a lot from that, but you cannot manage sin. You cannot medicate sin. There's something that goes way deeper. See, this false belief that God just completely overreacted by killing his only son. That false belief comes from not seeing the seriousness of our sin problem. Not seeing just how deep 
our sin actually goes. And the beauty of Genesis, it just tries to lay it out for us. Because so many of us have come to church and the church has just told us, now listen, go and be a better person. Go and be like Noah. Noah was just on God's all-star list. God looked down and said, wow, look at my boy Noah. He's the one guy who's just hitting spiritual home runs. I want that guy on my team. I'm going to kill everybody else, but keep the all-stars. And that is absolutely not what happened. They're all sinful. They're all wicked. Every intention of their heart is always evil. And God chooses by grace to come down, to reveal himself to Noah, to live inside Noah, and to make Noah righteous. As a person walks with God, God makes that person into the image of his son. God sanctifies that person. Genesis here shows us just how deep our sin goes. It goes to our core. It goes to our heart. And there's only one thing that cure it. There's only one thing that can cure this sinful nature that's inside of us. There's only one thing that can truly kill sin. Let's get a little ahead of our story. So I'm going to let that sit for a while. Let's open up our Bible. Genesis chapter 9. Let's work through this book together. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. When you're there, let me know it by saying there. Okay, let's do it. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now listen. As we've been tracking through the book of Genesis, this is the third time that we have seen God blessing his chosen people. God is just so gracious. He's not capricious or pouty. He's not some grumpy old man in the sky that demands for his people to placate him and keep him happy. He's not like some king sitting on his throne with his gesture and say, make me laugh, make me happy, do something that pleases me. Genesis shows us an eternally and infinitely happy God that graciously bestows his blessing on his people. One way blessing. Again, this is the third time we've also heard God say this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God's reiterated what we call the cultural mandate now three separate times. Do you think he's got a purpose here? Right? You're telling a good story. You constantly reiterate your main points. Right? It's what you do. Moses is trying to let us know, this is why you were created. To glorify God and enjoy him forever by filling the earth with good creation. By making babies that glorify him. This is why you're here. Again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the, fill the earth Verses two, the fear of you, this is going to get a little weird here. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. So number one, what happened when Moses filled the ark is God did something crazy with the animals. So the animals actually came to him. Right? He's making way in the ark. And if, for those of you, we, we went over the, the dimensions of the ark the past couple weeks. It was large enough. Oh, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. I think it was 550. I can't remember. 
was it 55? 55. 55. I don't remember if that's right, man. Yeah, I know how big it was, but I can't remember. It was over a million cubic square feet. It was large. Okay. It was large. Huge. So he's got enough room to put all these animals in the ark. And they came to him. And now God is doing something different. Now God is saying, I'm putting the fear of man in these animals. And he's doing one really, really, really good thing. We're about to see. Let's keep going. Every, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you the green plants, up until this moment they were vegetarians, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, and for your lifeblood... Okay, let's just stop right there. First thing God is doing here is he's, he's saying, boys, boys and girls, meat. It's on the menu. All right? You can kill and you can eat. Now, praise God. Can somebody just thank God that meat is now on the menu? Right? Like, every time you slap something on the grill, you should thank God and Noah. Right? I thank God that Noah brought two of these cows into the... Because I'm enjoying this steak because my boy Noah obeyed God. Right? This is our good, gracious God opening up things and allowing us to kill animals for our food. Every time you bite into a burger, we should be thanking God. God is gracious. He gives it to us just for its good. Now, listen... What does it mean? He's kind of a weird, but don't eat it with his lifeblood. Um, God is just saying, we're not savages. We're not like animals. We don't eat things that are living, right? Somebody needs to tear, tell Bear Grylls this probably, but kill it first, then eat it, right? Don't just take a bite out of the thing, right? You're not a savage. You're, not a, you're different from the animal kingdom. There's something different about you. So the first thing he says here is eat meat, all right? Just kill it first. Now, the second thing, let's look. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Look at this. For God made man in his own image. Now, listen. This, it could be a, a difficult part, a difficult section for some of you. I want you to see God roots something here in what we call the Imago Dei. We've already studied that in the weeks past. The Imago Dei is God made man in his own image. There's something different from the animal kingdom about man. Man has a higher form of logic. Man has a soul and a spirit. Man has reason. Man has cognitive ability. Man is built in the image of God differently than animals. Because, listen to this. Because of the image of God, because of God's thumbprint into our souls, he says, if you kill someone, you should be killed. God is instituting capital punishment here right away. What it really is, is the beginning of the first form of government. God is saying, I want you to go and be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to make good culture for the glory of God. But I'm not, I'm not a dummy. Right? I know what happened with Cain. I saw what happened in those 1,600 years. I realize that sin is still in your heart, Noah, so things will go bad. So there will be people who want to come against human flourishing. There will be people that want to destroy just because they're sinners. There will be people that want to take from you and not build up community and live on mission, but they'll want to rule the world and do their own thing. There will be sinful people in the future. And those sinful people, if they rise up and kill, you should kill them. This is the beginning 
of capital punishment. And he's not doing it, he's not doing it capriciously, like, because I'm mad at him. I'm ticked off at him. Because they, mankind has the image of God. There's dignity and value and worth in every human being. Every human being. Inherent dignity and value and worth. Our culture says you have to go work for it. You have to prove that you have dignity, value, and worth by being productive to, and, and, and contributing to society. God says, absolutely not. You have dignity and value and worth because you have the image of God. So I'm going to let that go right there. Okay. If you want people to flourish, God says, go flourish. You've got to have punishment for those who damage and fight against the flourishing of humanity. Verse seven. And you, says it again, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So he says it again. Now, why do you think God is repeating this to Noah? Why do you think God is just saying it over and over and over again? Now listen, for me, Noah probably needed this mandate reiterated to give him some more motivation. Listen, can you imagine what he, what we, last week was really heavy. If you missed last week, you should probably listen to the podcast. All right, last week was really heavy. But can you imagine Noah? Noah, his whole life, he's 600 years old, right? He's watched people work furiously for culture building homes, building cities, creating musical instruments, inventing the arts, inventing music. I mean, he's watched this brilliant cultural creation. And then what happened to it? Everything destroyed in the flood. All the work of man's hands went down in the flood. Cities destroyed, music, art, culture, everything gone. Can you imagine getting off the boat? If I was Noah, I'd be like, what's the point? Really? I'm going to build a house? What's going to happen to it? God gets ticked off and we're all swimming for it again. I'd be thinking, what is the point, man? If, if I'm just going to work my whole life away of making culture and building a business and, and, and loving my family and, and trying to build a city and trying to bless the city for the glory of God, what's the point if God's just going to water bomb the whole thing again? So God gives Noah some encouragement. God gives Noah a covenant. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks on covenant. It's one of the predominant themes of the entire Bible, which I believe if you don't understand covenant, you don't understand the Bible. It's that big. Everything just about is covenantal in the Bible. But let's read it and let's just, let's just go through it a little bit this morning. Okay, we're not, we're not going to spend much time on it, but let's go through it. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is every beast of the earth. I establish, look, he's just reiterating, I establish, I establish my covenant with you. This is a unilateral covenant. This is God doing it, not man having to respond. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. So right here, God is saying, listen, okay, Noah, I get it. You're probably thinking, why work? Why work hard if God's just going to destroy everything in the end? Right? Listen, 
Christians today have the same view of culture. Why does it matter if I litter? Why does it matter if I cut down all the trees? Why does it matter if I pollute? God's just going to destroy the thing in the end anyways, right? He's going to come back and he's going to burn the whole thing up, right? Christians have the same negative view of culture today. It doesn't matter. God's just going to burn this earth up and then we're all going to float up to heaven in some ethereal la-la land. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So God is reiterating his covenant. And he's telling them, I'm never going to destroy the earth by water, a flood again. I'm never going to do it again. And just like the water didn't destroy the earth, but recreated it. So the fires in the book of Revelation will recreate this earth and renew this earth. And we'll have a brand new restored earth where it's going to burn off the thorns. But leave the roses untouched. It's going to burn off the impact of sin. It's going to burn off the anger. It's going to burn off the selfishness. It's going to burn off all those results and consequences of sin. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow, it's a rainbow, in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God says, I'm going to give you proof that I'll never do it again. When you look at that sky and, the cl- and it's cloudy and the sun's coming through or whatever, and it creates that rainbow, that is my sign to you that I'm never going to destroy the earth again. If you're married in this room, most of you probably wear a wedding ring. That wedding ring is a sign, it's a symbol of the covenant commitment you made with your spouse. It's a circle, it's unending. Every time you look at it, you're reminded, I'm taken. I'm in a commitment. I'm in a covenant. One man, one woman for me. This is between me and God. Me, my spouse, and God. God, in, God created marriage. He formed it. One man, one woman. God walked them down the aisle. This is marriage. The wedding ring is a sign of that covenant. It's a symbol of that covenant. Just like the rainbow is a symbol and a sign of the covenant God made with all of the earth, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to flood the earth like that again. Verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. All right. So covenant here, I'm going to give you a, a quick snapshot. Covenant is this. God chooses in his grace. He chooses people right here. We have a unilateral covenant. If if you're familiar with what happened on the mountain of Sinai, it's going to happen a little bit down the road. That's that's a, a covenant between two people. God does his part. We have to do our part. This is a unilateral covenant. God just says, I promise to you that I'm never going to destroy the earth again. Later on, God's going to make more specific covenants, specifically with Abram. That's when we're going to really talk about what does it mean? What does a covenant really mean? All right, so I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks. But right now, can, hold on just for a second. 
Can you imagine Noah? Noah, was, Noah had to be OCD, okay? Noah had to be OCD. Every time he heard thunder, Right? Noah's out there working. He's building cities. He's creating things for the glory of God. And all of a sudden, a cloud walks in. He starts getting this nervous twitch. Right? Because it had never rained. Most scholars believe it had never rained up until then. And then it rains for 40 days nonstop. The waters burst. The, probably the, who knows what happened. Ice caps melt. The whole thing floods. Right? And now I imagine Noah, as he's fulfilling the cultural mandate every day, is kind of freaking out. Starts a little rain, a little rain starts sprinkling. I imagine this guy was a complete freak about it. So God right now graciously says, okay, listen, when, you, when your OCD thing flares up, just look to the sky, right? I imagine Noah was the first one to always spot the rainbow. Kids, it's a rainbow. We're not swimming for it, right? I imagine Noah was pretty OCD about it. But God, in his grace, makes a covenant with him. I'm never going to do it again. All right? So that's that. Now we're going to segue a little bit into some um, fun stuff. Let's just say that. Okay? Verses 18 and 9. So God makes a covenant with creation, and he sends Noah's family out on a mission. Verse 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now listen, the Bible doesn't mince words. The Bible doesn't waste words. The Bible um, is very specific on every word that it uses here. And Moses is a brilliant storyteller. And right now he's laying some very important groundwork for us to understand the story coming down the road. If you can remember, Moses is reiterating this story to the Hebrews as they're being led out of Egyptian slavery. And they're being delivered. Where are they being delivered into? The promised land, also called the land of Canaan. They're being led into the land of Canaan, and Moses just drops right here. He dro- he's a name dropper, okay? Ham was the father of Canaan. Through Ham will come the Canaanites. Comes a lot of people. Come the Egyptians, come the Canaanites, comes a lot of bad people. One of the things about when God sent them into the promised land is he said, all these people I've delivered into your hand. And this is a part that nobody likes about the Bible. God said, those people that are in the land that I promised you, those Canaanites, kill them. We don't preach this very often. I don't like to preach this and I have a smile on my face when I preach this. God says, take them out, all of them. Man, woman, child. They're in your land. You kill them. Now, the Hebrews, so the Hebrews are listening to this story, right? They're shaking. They're nervous. They don't want to go into the land of Canaan. They walked into the land of Canaan. They're like, these dudes are giants. They're bringing back grapes like on this huge stick and these huge giant, look at, look at this fruit. It's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. It's, it's product. It's great. But there's some huge people in this land called the Canaanites. And right here, Moses is reminding them where the Canaanites come from. He's reminding them of their history. The reason, listen, this is a big statement. The reason God hated the Canaanites 
is because they were rampant idolaters who practiced incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality. It was a part of their religion. So God says, those people are inhabiting your land. I want you to take it. And we're, that's down the road. We can study that. There's a lot of questions there you, that you can ask me. Write me on the city about it. We're not going to go too much. But right now, verse 18, Moses is saying, this is where that people, this is where they came from. And you're about to see what created them. Why are they like that? Why are they idol worshipers that want to create their own religion and do their own thing and worship their own God in their own way? Why are they like that? We're about to see. This is their story. And listen, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is part of your story as well. This is their history, and it's a part of your history as well. So we're about to get into some good stuff here, some crazy stuff. Now, for those of you who have uh, quite the, let's say, colorful family, okay, a story, the story might be a little bit of an encouragement to you, right? If you've got some crazy stuff up in your family tree, well, this is going to be some encouragement to you right here. All right, this is going to show you that every family, even Noah, the righteous dude, is a little jacked up. Because this story, it's about to go, it's about to go Jerry Springer up in here, okay? Let's just, let's just say it. That's what's about to happen. Verse 20, or verse 19, actually. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So every one of us have come from, originally Adam and Eve, but then 1,600 years, God wiped them off the earth. So we all have Noah as our descendants. We are descendants of Noah. Every person on the face of the planet is a descendant of Noah, okay? No, and, you're, and believe me, if you don't believe me, next week you're going to find out, okay? Because Moses doesn't just make a big statement like that. He goes, oh, let me prove it to you. And he traces the lineage. He traces how the Canaanites came from Ham, how the Jebusites, and the, you're going to get into all the ites, okay? We're going to get into Egyptians. We're going to get into Babylonians. We're gonna, he's going to show how this family tree, how it sprouted the nations of the world. And literally right away, you're going to have people going to Libya, people going to Africa, people going to... I mean, all across the planet, next week is going to just put a microscope on the expansion of humans across the earth. All right? So we all come from this family. So those of you who thought you had that squeaky clean family tree, nah, you got some weirdness up there. And we're about to discover it right here. Here we go. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine... And he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. All right, now every good story starts with alcohol. So <laughs> Noah obeys God for 120 years. 120 years of obedience to God. And now he gets off the earth. God, God calms his fears. He says, all right, now listen, Noah, don't freak out every time it rains. I want you to go be fruitful and multiply. So what does Noah do? Noah invents winemaking. Thank you, Noah. <laughs> Noah is fruitful and he subdues creation by creating wine. Noah is a vintner. Many scholars believe that Noah invented winemaking right here. Now listen, this is just funny to me, but after 150 days on a floating zoo, you know the brother needed a drink. <laughs> right? He gets off the earth. He's like, I've been thinking about this for 150. If I took that grape 
and I let it sit for a while, I wonder what would happen to it. Right? He needed a drink, but unfortunately, he, he had 10. All right? So, like I said before, sin is just so deep. Now, listen, I want you to see what's happening here. Sin is so deep in us that we take good things and we turn them into little g, God things. We turn them into things that we worship. We let creation turn on us and make us into monkeys. A grape. A grape. And it's got old boy buck naked and passed out in his tent. Do you see how the reversal of creation here? Subdue the earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful and multiply, and a grape. It's so easy. Our heart is so sinful that we so easily take created things and make them into God things. Instead of Noah using creation to glorify God, he lets creation rule over him by getting drunk. Psalm 104, for some of you who want to memorize this, Psalm 104, 15 says that God has given us wine to gladden the heart of man. But Noah takes that to the excess, to the extreme, and he gets drunk. Now listen, I find this funny. Because we're nine chapters into one of the oldest books in the world, and we've already laid out our culture's weekend plans. What do you mean this book is outdated and irrelevant? Noah just got off the boat and he's already drunk and naked. I wonder how many of us or how many of our friends, how many of our culture, how many of our acquaintance ended up exactly in the same place last night. Alcohol is a gift of God, but drunkenness is always a sin. We appreciate alcohol at Sacred City. Many missional communities will have a beer at dinner. We'll have music uh, missional nights down at 11th Street Precinct. We throw parties every time a missional community launches or multiplies, and there is usually alcohol present. But we're meant to use alcohol to glorify God. This morning in the communion, there's alcohol and there's grape juice. Use wisdom. Use wisdom. Alcohol, wine gladdens the heart of man. That's fine. Getting drunk is an absolute sin. Getting drunk is taking created things and putting them and worship, worshiping them. Getting drunk is showing there's something wrong with our heart. We can't just enjoy a good thing. Doesn't that frustrate you? Those of you who, who have been alcoholics, those of you who have struggled with addictions, all of us struggle with some sort of addiction, but doesn't that just frustrate you? That you can't just have a little? Doesn't that just drive you insane? Why is that? Why can't you just have a little? Why do you have to go one more? And am I, you know, am I drunk right now? Am I not? It's the sinful condition, the sinful bentward in on ourself. 
our sinful heart desires to take other things and worship them like they're God. Alcohol is a gift from God, but we're meant to rule over it and not the other way around. That means if someone, if you're living with a, in a house full of guys and somebody was an alcoholic, you don't bring beer in the house. You don't bring beer in the house. You don't bring, if he's struggling with it, if he says, hey, I'm not struggling with it, keep, keep an eye on me. I don't want to drink, but keep an eye on me. I'm not struggling with me. Okay, that's fine. That's different. But we use wisdom. We use wisdom in dealing with alcohol. All right? But I also don't want us to go to the religious extreme. People go to these extremes and prohibition and, and all this craziness where people say alcohol is a sin. What? Anytime somebody wants you to be more holy than Jesus, just dismiss them, okay? When Jesus turns water to wine, when Jesus partakes of wine himself, he is giving the stamp of approval on alcohol in moderation. Anybody that's more holy than Jesus, deuces, right? Go create a cult on your own. Not me. Listen, why am I so adamant about it? Because I spent about eight years doing it. I became a Christian. I, I, I drank a little bit in high school. My parents aren't here this morning, so I drank, <laughs> I drank a little bit in high school, right? I got saved when I was 17. Didn't touch it. Didn't touch alcohol for about seven years, right? And I became a phenomenal Pharisee. I used to smoke cigars. Stopped it. What if somebody drove, this is what pastors told me. What if somebody drove by your house and saw you smoking a cigar? I said, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Now I'm like, they'd see me smoking a cigar and having a drink to the glory of God just like Corinthians tells me to do. Do everything, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And I'll do it for the glory of God. And I do it in moderation. So when I, when God's sovereignty just saved me, really, and, and just changed me a few years ago, I was saved before that, but just, you know, awakened me. One, and I, you can argue with me all you want. One of the first things, and you can tell, ask my wife, one of the first things God said to do is call Teddy and have a beer. And I did, didn't I, Teddy? I still remember. Lining Kugel's dark, baby. In my garage. And listen, I enjoyed it for the glory of God. And I've never been drunk. I've never been drunk since. Right? I've never had too many and, and, and acted a fool. The Spirit of God on the inside of you allows you to use things in moderation if it... Well, I don't want to get there yet. If something has been crucified. There is no managing sin. There's only killing it. So, thanks to a sinful heart, Noah takes a good thing and he gets wasted. And this is about to sound like an episode from my big fat redneck wedding, okay? Noah passes out, buck naked, and his son, the little freak, comes in and spies on him. Okay, now I know, listen, I know he's a freak because the one thing in life that nobody wants to see is their dad naked. Right? Dude, I am super thankful that my dad is in Alabama today. So I don't have to look out at him and be like, oh man, mental image. Right? Burned in my mind, scarred in my mind. I'm so glad my dad has gone out of town this week. So I know the guy's a little freak. Right? He comes, walk. listen, Noah gets drunk, ends up in his tent. Where's he? Listen to this. He's in his house. 
He's in his own home. He's in his own bedroom. My wife was next door to my office last night laughing at me because I'm in my bed. I'm in my office yelling, right? I'm like, where is Noah's wife? Where's she at? Like guarding him or something, you know? He gets drunk and passes out and an old boy Frico comes walking in looking at dad. Weird. I'm like, Noah, God gives us women to be helpmates. She ain't helping here. I got no idea, but maybe she was a wife like, like Martin Luther's wife. Maybe she was the one making the wine, right? Martin Luther, I read one of his letters to his wife and he says, I love you so much. I miss you. Oh, and I can't wait for that glorious homebrew that you make. Like he was telling his wife, like you make the best beer, babe. Right? Maybe that's what Noah's wife's doing. I got no idea. I got, maybe she's passed out too. We don't know what's going on with Noah's wife, but let me give you some backstory. Let me give you some backstory so you can interpret this passage correctly. Okay. So first thing, Ham walks in, looks at his dad, see, listen, that's what he said. Sees his sin, sees his dad exposed, sees his nakedness, sees his weakness. And like a little punk, he runs out of the tent and exposes his dad's sin to others. So first off, let's just talk about this. Why is this such a big deal? This will help us interpret this. It's a difficult text. It is a difficult text to interpret, but this will help us. God created a patriarchal society. God is our father. We are his children. One of the laws that God gives in the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. Parents are held in high regard. Rebellion is one of the chief sins. In Exodus, there's a law that says it was when God, there was a theocracy, God was ruling over his people and God set the laws. And he said, if you strike your father, you're dead. Kill him. I'm pretty sure people probably obeyed their parents. Right? For the most part, like you can't change the heart. But I want you to hear this. God takes honor your father and mother very seriously. He says there's something about the relationship between kids and their dads and their moms that's similar to people and their heavenly father and they're going to want to rebel. They want to fight against and press against and they're going to want to get as far away from authority as they possibly can. But, uh, But fathers and mothers need to have authority over their kids. You're not their buddy, mom and dad. Maybe when they get a little older, whatever. You're the parent. You're in authority. So Ham, what he's doing here, he's not respecting his father. And that, it's a big deal. It's not like us. Like we can, you know, like you turn on every little reality TV show and you got these little four-year-old divas telling mom where they can go. Right? creating, we're just brewing hell in our kids by allowing them to have that rebellious spirit against their parents. So Ham rebels against authority. 
He rebels against God-given authority. Every time I have to discipline my son, I say, son, what does the Bible say? He repeats to me back, Ephesians, he says, children, obey your parents so that it will go well for you. That's right, son. So it will go well for you. God wants it to go well for you. I want it to go well for you. But only go, going well only happens under our authority when you obey your father and mother. So Ham, like that little, cute, funny punk that he was, doesn't respect his father. Now listen, even though, I'm not covering up, listen, we're going to get to this, even though Noah was a sinner. He he exposes his father, he mocks him, and he takes his sin public as gossip. Now listen, this is what happens. So he goes out and he tells his brothers, but thank God, that Ham's brothers worshiped God. Ham's brothers walked with God. Ham's brothers were godly and honorable men who served God. And they, these guys jumped through hoops. They're like walking backwards into the tent. Ham comes out. You got to see this dad is buck naked in the tent. He's passed out. Right? Everybody loves a good drunk. Right? We rent movies about it. It's hilarious what people do when they're drunk. Two brothers, it's not funny. You're disrespecting our father. He's been providing for us. His obedience got us safely through the flood. You're a fool, Ham. So they go to the tent and they, they walk backwards. They're holding a cloak on their shoulders. They're walking backwards. Right? They don't want to see, I mean, more, more reasons than one, right? Like, they don't want to dishonor them. They're just like, right? It's like looking in the future. No, that's why they don't want to see. <laughs> oh, no! That's where I'm headed? Yeah. You know, they're walking backwards. They're jumping through hoops trying to cover their father's sin. Do you cover people's sin or do you expose them? Now listen, there's a time for both. It depends on the sin. This here, what we're talking about, was a private sin. It was a sin done in his own home. It was a sin that affected him. This is a sin that needs to be covered. This is a sin that you cover and then you confront the next day. Dad, what's going on? You drank too much. What's going on? You're not leading us well. Whatever the deal is, you confront in private. You don't go expose it and, t- and gossip and tell the world. Now, if Moses got drunk, or if Moses, if Noah got drunk and he abused somebody or he did something perverted, then that needs to be exposed because there's victims involved. Do you expose or do you cover? Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see the father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants or a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Now, I'm like, this dude's waking up from his drunken stupor. 
When I first read this, I'm like, Noah gets up. He realizes what's done. He's got a hangover. He's walking out. First person he sees is Canaan, his grandson, the son of Ham. And he just fires off a curse. I curse you, you fool. Right? That's, that's kind of how I thought it happened. When I was first reading this, like he just reacts. He's just in anger and he's just embarrassed over his own sin. And he just lashes out. But verse 26 shows us that's not the case. Verse 26 says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So he curses one and he blesses, doesn't bless the other. He blesses God. He praises God for his covering. He praises God that his sons, at least two of his sons, have embraced the, the faith of their, uh, of their father, have embraced God and covered the sin of his, of his, of his own sin. So Noah curses the grandson and praises God. That's why we know he's not reacting just in anger. If he's reacting in anger, he'd come out and say, Canaan, why couldn't you be more like Japheth? Why couldn't you be more like the good son? Why are you going to be like this? He doesn't. He curses and he praises God. He praises God for the obedience of his son. He praises God for God's faithfulness to him. Now, this gets... This is some deep stuff here. Why does he curse? Why does he curse the grandson? Dads, as we, as we begin to close here, I want you to see this. Ham's son was cursed because of Ham's sin and his own sin. We like to say around here that we are sinners who respond sinfully to being sinned against. Most scholars believe that this is kind of like saying, like father, like son. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it? Dad. He comes out, he curses Canaan. Why? Because he's basically saying he's just like his dad. The same little mocking voice, the same little punk that wants to expose people's sin. Canaan's out there laughing with a little smirk on his face. My dad saw him butt naked last night. He comes out and he curses him. You're just like your father, Canaan. Ham was a rebellious and foolish man, so his son will be a rebellious, rebellious and foolish man. Mm. Dads, do you know that you're making a mini-me? You're setting the tone in your family. You're either you're teaching your, you, are, you are either teaching your kids how to walk close to God or you are teaching them how to avoid him. You are teaching them how to rebel. If you're in this room and you've never had a father, I, I'm, I grieve for you. And that, the lack of that will affect you. The lack of that will grieve you. This is another reason why I said earlier that there's no... 
There's no managing sin. You're setting the tone here. I said there, there's no managing. You either kill it or it kills you. There's no middle ground. You are always giving your life to something. It's either God or something less than God. Dads, if you're teaching your kids just how to throw themselves into work, it's not good enough. Your job is something lesser than God. It's not good enough to be the ultimate thing. If it's music, if if it's sex, if it's sports, those things are lesser. They're not big enough. And you're teaching your kid how to rebel against God and go after something else. What are you chasing? You're training your kids right now. Mom and dad, I don't want to let you off here. Mom and dad, you're training your kids to chase something. What are you chasing? The American dream? Comfort? Christianity's been all jacked up. We got this idea that you come in and you just accept Jesus and you go out and live whatever way you want. Too bad God, Jesus Christ himself, when one man comes to him, the rich young ruler, I'm just going to say the American, walks up to Jesus, he says this, Jesus, what do I got to do to be saved? Jesus says this. Oh, just this. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. There's some of you that if you're following Jesus Christ, he will say that to you. Give it up. Give up the second house. Give up the two-week vacation. Give up the, the another car. Give up the motorcycle. Give God will require, he will ask things of you and he's not doing it to take something away. He's doing it because he wants to be better than all those things. He wants following him and walking near him is better than finding comfort in the goods of the world. That rich young ruler walked away sad because he saw walking with Christ as less valuable than his things that he'd worked so hard for. Dads, you're training your kids to live for something right now. And listen, I've been saying it all all, all day, but here's the answer. The only thing that can kill sin, not manage it. And when I say this, this is going to sound like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing that can kill sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. Not accepting Jesus into your heart. The cross. Where sinners go to die with their Savior. Where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Where Paul, die daily, crucify yourself daily. The cross of Jesus Christ where sinners and sin go to die. I hope you see that this morning because like Ham, listen, like Ham, God sees our absolute nakedness. It didn't matter if you're in your own home. Doesn't matter if you're doing it behind closed doors. God, like Ham, he can see everything you're doing. He sees even more than just your nakedness. He sees the nakedness of your heart. God sees you through and through. He knows us better than we know ourselves, And he's so completely aware of our sin. You try, don't come to church like you're going to avoid God. 
He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He can see all things. He knows all things. You can't avoid him. Like Ham, he sees our nakedness. But listen to this. He's not like Ham who runs out of the tent and exposes it to the world and wants to embarrass and wants to just, you know, ruin your name. He's like Ham that he sees your nakedness, but he's like Shem and Japheth that he also offers us a garment to cover our sin. He offers us something to cleanse us, to cover us, to remove the shame caused by our rebellion. And that garment, listen, that garment is given to us at the cross where sinners die with their Lord. Galatians 2.20, we love to quote it. It's on, you know, shirts and little coffee cups. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do we think about that? I have been crucified. Have you? Christian, disciple, have you? I'm not talking about, do you go to church? I'm not talking about, are you moral? I'm not talking about, do you manage sin? And you just, you know, I'm not talking about, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? I'm talking about, have you died with him at the cross? Have you left your old life hanging dead and limp on the tree? Have you walked away from all your aspirations, from all your plans of life, for all your comfort? Have you walked away from that? That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. No longer I live anymore, but Christ lives in me. So now this life that I live, I live for his glory. The cross exposes my nakedness and also covers it. The cross proves just how bad my sin really is. And that, listen, it demands the death of God's son. Nothing else could cure it. It's really that bad. Yeah, you just rebelling against your parents. It's really that bad. The only thing that can cut the root is the death of God. It's that bad. He's not overreacting. It's that bad. The cure fit the problem. The cross reveals my nakedness and shows me that, the, that God's son, his crucifixion was necessary. But listen, it does something else. At the same time, the cross shows me just how loved I am. That Jesus did it willingly, not under compulsion. You're that bad that he had to die, but you're that loved that he did it willingly. Jesus died to deal with your sin, to deal with my sin. His blood covers you. His blood severs the root of sin. The cross cuts it off at its root. That's why disciples of Jesus hate their sin. They hate it. 
If you don't hate your sin, I doubt you're saved. I doubt you walk with God. I doubt you know God. You can go to churches and they just put a smile on your face and give you a rose and and make it all about you and you can walk out feeling okay in your sin. That is not what Scripture teaches. If you don't... The gospel of Jesus Christ causes us to hate the sin that forced our Savior, that nailed our Savior to the cross. We hate that sin. We fight that sin. But listen, don't just hear that. But at the same time, my sin doesn't send me into guilt and condemnation because Jesus has already paid for it. Paid in full. Paid in full. Past, present, future. The blood of Christ paid the debt. Hallelujah, praise be Jesus. Praise be our God. He paid the debt and ransomed sinners. I pray that that truth would sink in this morning. That it'd be the most powerful and eternity-shaping vision in your whole life. Be thou my vision. Let that be your vision. Let God's gracious gift to us in Christ be your vision. When you think of Christ, what does your heart do? Fathers, I plead with you to lay the controller down, to put the football down, to turn off the TV, to pick out your Bible, to take your kid, to disciple him, to love and worship Jesus. I beg you to do it. I beg you to take your daughter on dates and teach her how the love of a father feels. So when some knuckle-headed pubescent 16-year-old takes her out on a date. She doesn't fall in love with the little fool who pays for her dinner. Dad, we have a high calling. Moms, we have a high calling. And listen, men, I know this is heavy. That's how it always is. That's how I preach. I can't help that. But listen, this is for your joy. When your team scores a touchdown and your heart beat and you jump out of your chair. Really? And I love football. I can say it this week because Alabama had a bye week. God died for a dead sinner. That's you. In order to make that dead sinner his son or daughter. If that doesn't do something to your heart more than an 80-yard pass or a 50-yard run or another first down, something's wrong and you need to repent and you need to ask God, do something in my heart. Awaken me to the gospel. Awaken me to God's son. Do something in me so that I can lead my family well. It's leading your family into joy. Football's fun. Right? Football's fun till you get hurt. I know. I worship wrestling. I worship wrestling. That's who I was. My identity was all around wrestling. Last football game of the year, my senior year, dislocated my elbow, tore all my ligaments. I thought I was going to be out forever. I was out for half the season. My world came crashing down. Wrestling will fail you. Football will fail you. Your athletic prowess will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. 
ever. Alcohol will fail you. You use it to numb the pain. You use it to forget about what your father did. You use it to forget about not having a father. You use it to forget about it will fail you. You're going to wind up drunk and naked. Only Christ can cover your nakedness. That's what we do this morning. As believers in Christ, baptized believers, as we take part of communion, we're remembering the seriousness of our sin, but the absolute gloriousness of God's remedy, his own son, from his wounded side, from his head, from his hands, the blood that covers. I read in Revelation this morning, the blood that washes us white as snow. Father, I thank you for being the true and better ham that reveals our nakedness, reveals our brokenness, reveals our sin, but who doesn't expose it like Ham and Japheth, you cover us. Father, I pray that we are people who are shaped by that, that we are changed by the gospel of grace, that we can be radically open with people, with you, because you've got us covered. Thank you for having us covered. For those in this room that are not disciples of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would give them the faith to believe. You would regenerate their heart. You would give them faith to say to you, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And Father, you would save them here today. You would adopt them into your family and send them on a mission with us. And for the disciples in this room who are not walking with you, who maybe like Noah find themselves drunk too often, you would cover their sin. You would melt their heart. You would send them into community and on mission. Are the fathers here that we wouldn't be fathers like Ham who lead our sons into foolishness, but we would be fathers like Shem and Japheth, that more importantly, you would be our heavenly father and you would be our kids' heavenly father. Only you are the perfect heavenly father that never blows it. I pray that as fathers and mothers in this room, we'd be quick to repent to our children. Father, you are gracious. You are good. You are glorious and you are great. I pray that we would turn from our sin and turn to an even greater Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.